is to sing the hymns that have so much truth in them. Open your Bibles with me tonight to Romans chapter 1, please. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12. I want to start by saying that I need this message just as much as anyone else. I preached to myself all week when I was studying this out. And I actually already had a message planned on this. And I was, as I was praying and going over it early in the week, God had a change of plans. And I want to tell you tonight, I just want to warn you that we're going to be all over the Bible. I, I don't normally preach a topical message, but God, what God says, I'll do. So Romans chapter 12, verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I want to ask us a question tonight. I want to ask a question. What does the word sacrifice mean to you? I mean, people think of the men and women that have served our country and they have died for this country and, and, and paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we might have our freedom. And without that, I might not even be able to stand up here tonight and preach God's word. And thank God for that. And some might even put in the definition of a, a man going to work every day and spending all his time just to be able to support his family. And thank God for those men. But what does it mean in the biblical sense? What does the word sacrifice mean in biblical terms? I think in order to understand the sacrifice, we must go to the very beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verses 3 through 6 says, But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doeth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Do you ever notice that Jesus was tempted in the same manner as Eve when fasting for 40 days in the wilderness? All in all, I think we can agree that temptation and sin appeals to the flesh. It appeals to that which is carnal. It appeals to our worldly mind. Eve saw that the tree was good for food. And Jesus was tempted to turn the stones into bread. Thank God that we have a mediator. Thank God that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Sin will never appeal to you spiritually, but it will appeal to the desires of your flesh. Eve said it herself. The one, the one and only thing that God had warned them to stay away from, and she saw that it was good for food. It appealed to her eyes. Sin is not something that looks ugly to us in the moment. Over in James, it says that we are drawn away by our own lust. If it's lust, it can't be ugly, right? Second Corinthians even tells us that Satan himself is transformed into an angel. It can be deceiving. 
realized the repercussions of sin and was even deceived into thinking that the fruit of the tree would make her as wise as God. Sin will make you stupid. On the outside, it looks like a little kickback like a child would give their parents. And some might even ask, would God really allow the complete and utter downfall of mankind because of one little act of disobedience? Of course, the answer is always yes. As Romans 10 says, they went about establishing, establishing their own righteousness. One act of disobedience is to say that you're your own God. You run the show and you make up the rules as you go. And when we decide that God is not the Lord of our life, then we, must, we, we commit the most heinous crime that we could imagine against our creator. To make yourself your own God? Think about that. Really? To make yourself your own God? Romans chapter 1 verse 22 says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. To say that we run the show and make our own decisions without any regard to God's will is to commit this, the same sin that got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. He wanted his throne above God's. He wanted things to run his way. And if you read over in Isaiah chapter number 14, you will see that Lucifer never even verbally said that. He said it in his very own heart. He wanted to ascend above God's throne, above the stars, and he said it all in his heart. And now that we can see that just one act of disobedience on Adam and Eve's part, we see that how vast it really is. We see why God would allow the downfall of man. And even worse, through this, we can understand why God would send sinful man to hell. But God, in his loving and merciful character, after the fall immediately, he gave Adam and Eve a covering for their sin. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 says, it's where God ordains the first sacrifice. It says, Unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. From the very beginning, God gave shadows of the Messiah to come. The Bible does not tell us what kind of animal it was that God clothed Adam and Eve with to cover the sin that had stripped them of their innocence and caused them to see their very nakedness. But that's beside the fact. The point of God clothing them was that mankind would see what it costs to cover sin. There has to be a price paid. Those coats weren't only used for modest clothing. They were a picture of God wrapping his robe of righteousness around sinful man. It was a foreshadow of his righteousness imputed to us. But at what cost? God took an innocent animal... And shed its own blood and took the hide from that animal to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. God required an innocent and spotless animal and its blood to be spilled. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. As we move through the Bible and look at all the sacrifices that God required, we begin to get a better picture of what sacrifice truly means. Turn with me tonight um, in Exodus chapter number 29. I promise I won't make y'all flip much. Exodus chapter number 29. And we'll begin reading in verse 1. 
And this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them, unto them to hollow them, ministers unto me in the priest's office. Now this is God speaking. Take one young bullock and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread and cakes, and unleavened, unleavened tempered with oil, wafers unleavened anointed with oil, of wheat and flour shalt thou make them. And thou shalt put them in one basket and bring them in a basket with the bullock and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons thou shalt bring unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shalt wash them with water. And thou shalt take the garments and put upon Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the, the ephod and the breastplate and, the, and gird him with the curious girdle of the ephod. And thou shalt put the mitre upon his head and put the holy crown upon the mitre. Then thou shalt take the anointing oil and pour it upon the head of the anoint, and anoint him. And thou shalt bring his sons and put coats upon them. And thou shalt gird them with the girdles, Aaron and his sons, and put the bonnets on them. And the priest's office shall be theirs for a perpetual statute. And thou shalt consecrate Aaron and his sons. And thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle in the congregation. And thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards and the caul that is above the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them and burn them upon the altar. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung thou shalt burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. The first thing I want us to notice, and this is the fact that God made Aaron and his sons to put on a coat and it, that rep, before the sacrifice was offered. This coat represented not only salvation, but sanctification and consecration. It represented the Levites being set apart. Aaron, being the first ordained priest of God, was called to live a life set apart from the rest of Israel. It costed the Levites everything in order to be a part of God's priesthood. And as we read through the Old Testament, you will see the price that the tribe of Levi paid for serving God. When Israel overtook the land of Canaan, God said that the Levites would not inherit any land because the Lord is their inheritance. And living on the land lended to them by other tribes, they, they depended on God to feed them and for all their basic necessities. I'm sure some of the Levites would have loved to have a nice little home with a few acres to grow their crops on and support their family. But they had to forsake all that. They had to forsake the very idea of that in order to serve God. And it brings me to the thought that of what the world thinks when we say or when they see that we're willing to forsake all and serve God. You can't even tell a carnal person that you got saved without them thinking you're wasting your time. But when they see that you're willing to sell yourself out completely to serve God, they think you're throwing your life away. They really do. They think you're absolutely throwing your life away. What a waste of a life. I'll never forget when I told a coworker that God had called me to preach. And he looked at me as if he had seen a ghost. He didn't say a word to me. But his face said it all. It said a thousand words to me. And I'd also told one of my bosses. And he looked at me in disgust and said, why? 
Why would you do that? Why? The world thinks you've lost it when you sell yourself out for God. You mean to tell me that you're willing to subject yourself and subject all of your time when you could be hunting and fishing? You're going to subject all that to God? You mean to tell me you're willing to subject all of your financial burdens when you could stay at your job? The answer will always be yes. And it pays to serve God, by the way. It's not in a monetary sense. We, we, we receive blessings that we can only get from God by serving Him. And as the Levites had no inheritance in this world, neither do we as the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. As followers of Christ, anything that we have in this life that the world could consider a gain is lended to us by God to use for His glory. We will inherit nothing from this world when we pass on to glory. There is nothing that we will take from this world. Our life is but a vapor. The Lord will be our inheritance one day though. When it's all over, the Lord himself will be our inheritance in heaven. We can use the Levites as an example though. If you're going to serve God, then that means kissing this world goodbye and everything that it has to offer you. That, the next thing that I want us to notice about the Old Testament sacrifices is the importance of the blood. And we really get an understanding of it in Genesis chapter 4. I'm sure everyone has read the story of Cain and Abel, but I can't help but to wonder how many people have read the story and were left scratching their head, wondering as to why God had respect for Abel's offering and not Cain's. After all, Cain was a tiller of the ground. He worked hard. He pulled up the fruit from the ground. He, he worked off the sweat from his own brow. How could God be displeased when Cain had worked so hard to put together an offering made by the labor of his hands? Cain's offering had no life. It was an inanimate object and it was a picture of us trying to earn our salvation in our own abilities and in our own power. There's no amount of work that man can do to cover his sins. I could give all that I have to the poor. There's nothing I can do that would make me stand before God righteous in my own power. Thinking that way is like a murderer going before a judge and saying, well, well I, I did a few good works. I did a few good works. Any just a judge would not let that guilty man run free because he gave all that he had to the poor or because he went and served the homeless. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Can you kill a fruit? Blood is the requirement for sin to be covered. Someone has to pay the fine for the wages that we have earned as sinners. Leviticus chapter number 17 verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. A life had to be taken. The wage of sin is death. And in this case of the Old Testament sacrifice, God required innocent animals and they had to be without blemish. Notice in Exodus, in our verse back there, and, or in our text back there in chapter 29, verse 14. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. Cain's offering was a fleshly offering. It was part the, the part of the offering that smelled like dung. It had to be taken away from God's tabernacle and his people. It was a part of the offering that God wanted nothing to do with. 
God respected Abel's offering because he gave God the firstlings of his flock and the fat thereof. And that fat represents the inward parts of man. Look with me in verse 13. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards and the caul that is above the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them. God never wanted the outward parts. He is always looking for the inward parts of us. He wants our very heart, mind, and soul. The outward appearance means absolutely nothing to God. I'm sure many of us are familiar with verse 7. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh upon the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. All of this is a foreshadow of what was to come by the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. It was the heart of man that God was always after. Paul likens the law as to a schoolmaster over in Galatians. And I think it's safe to say that includes the ceremonial law of sacrifice. God commanded that the only the inward parts be placed upon the altar for good reason. God wanted man to see that his problem with sin came from the inward parts, our very core nature. And that is that was nothing that man could do to rid himself from within. God also wanted man to see that true sacrifice comes from within. It comes from the heart. Sacrifice and love both come from the heart and you can't have one without the other. If you sacrifice anything and, and in, in your, your life for God without love, then it's nothing. It's a sacrifice at all. It's no sacrifice at all. Excuse me. But if you love without sacrificing, that sacrifice means nothing. But God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. That word commendeth means to bring to one lump sum or bring it all together as a whole. All the love that God has for us was shown in the perfect and final sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus isn't just the definition of sacrificial love. He is sacrificial love. He's the very embodiment of sacrificial love. And one of the most precious, precious truths of the Bible is that God fashioned himself in the flesh. And the likeness of man didn't happen in God's perfectly sovereign timing. Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Jesus Christ came to this earth in the fullness of time, at the perfect time, and he came under the law. What does it mean when the Bible says under the law? He came under the law. Well, the moral laws of God, the Ten Commandments, and the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, always pointed sinful men to their need for a Savior. The law exposes our sinful nature and points us to the death that we deserve under the law. We are condemned under the holy laws of God, but thank God that Christ came to redeem us from this death. Romans 10, 4, 
tells us that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Those who have placed their faith in Christ are no longer condemned. And it saddens my heart to know that there are those that have not never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Family members, people we love. And the Bible says they're condemned already. The problem with the watered down gospel of today is that they teach a false doctrine which says that they can live and act how they want because they are under grace. They act as if God's law is null and void. Like it doesn't exist. They must not read their Bible or they must have the wrong one. They must not be reading the King James. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. I'm not saying you have to do anything to be saved. But if you want to live a sanctified life and strive to be like Christ, then you must examine all that God commands. We don't get to pick and choose what we like and dislike in the Bible. My Bible's not sugar Rip it out and pick and choose what I like and Jesus dotted every I and he crossed every T of, the God, of God's just and holy law, which is something that we will never be capable of in this life. We'll never reach sinless perfection, but as Christians, it's something we ought to be striving for. I once heard a preacher say, we will never be sinless, but we ought to want to sin less. If Christ was not sinless, his death on the cross would be in vain. And being a Christian would be completely pointless. We would be left with no example to follow after. And no hope of salvation. But Paul says that we are saved by his life. Jesus was a living sacrifice. He followed the law and the will of God of the Father without fault or sin. And to prove that he is sinless, the Bible tells us that he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And the God of the Bible can never lie. And God also being triune, that is God in three persons, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, was in perfect submission to God the Father. And I'm sure James, being the Lord's little brother, had learned a lot from him. And he even went on to say, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Jesus was always in submission to the will of his father, no matter what it cost him. He never excused himself from duty because of hardship. When Jesus took that long journey to Samaria, the Bible says that he was wearied. He'd been traveling by foot in the heat all day and all night. The disciples tried to give him a bite to eat. And he told them, I have meat that you know not of. My meat is through the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And last week, Brother Kenneth preached on the will of God. And for Jesus to be in the will of God, it costed him greatly. Matthew 8 tells us that Jesus didn't even have a place to rest his head. Could you just imagine the God of the universe? The creator of the very ground that he was walking on and he couldn't even find a place to rest his head at night? If life wasn't a bed of roses for the Lord himself, who are we to think that we will escape hardships and hard times? When it comes to following the will of God, some people will go as far as to say that Jesus was an extremist. 
Well, he did say, if any man cometh to me and hateth not his father and his mother and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. He's not saying to hate your father and mother, but in order to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ, you must be willing to forsake these things. You must be willing to forsake all the world has given you and all that it has to offer. It's a costly call that Jesus gives us here. As a young boy, the Lord was willing to forsake his own family. Jesus Christ never says anything without being our example. And it, when, when he was in Jerusalem, he allowed his family to leave without him. And once they realized that Jesus was not with them, where did they find him? They found him in the temple. And he told his parents that he must be about his father's business. Now, understanding that Jesus was tempted in all ways such as we are, without, yet without sin, understanding that he fulfilled every bit of the law and obeyed every bit of the law and was in perfect submission to the Father, we can see that he himself was the perfect sacrifice. The innocent, the spotless one, the lamb without blemish, willingly giving up his own life. He's our atonement. God himself fashioned in the flesh, paid the wages for our sin, and it costed him his precious life. And he did it out of love for sinners such as you and I. I don't know who this man is. I haven't looked into his doctrine, but he had a, a great quote that I came across. He said, so completely was Jesus bent on saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself. He created the tree which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to that accursed wood. An unknown author said, Jesus is the Redeemer and the price. The Bible would just be a sad story if it ended with the death of Jesus. But thank God it doesn't. Thank God we have a risen Savior. We serve a risen Savior. I don't serve a dead Christ. He's alive and well today. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. We serve a God that is everlasting to everlasting. He died for us in the form of the flesh, but he lives today. Those animals that died in the Old Testament, they were just a covering for sin. They met death at the door and that was it. That was final. We need more than a cleansing. Or we need more than a covering. We need a cleansing. Man needs cleansing. And a cleansing from sin can only be found by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Aaron and his sons were washed at the door of the tabernacle with water, through Christ we are now washed in his blood. As Aaron and his sons were washed with water at the door of the tabernacle, in John chapter number 10 verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. By me if any man enter in, he shall be saved. It costed the Lord his own spilled blood. But Jesus paid the penalty for us in our stead, in our place. You can turn back with me to Romans chapter 12, if you would. Romans chapter number 12, and I'll read it again. Verse number 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God... That ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. 
In light of Jesus paying it all, I want to bring to your attention that we are bought with a price. As disciples of Jesus and in light of him being our example, we don't get to live how we please. And I believe self-sacrifice is a mark of salvation. There is no middle ground when it comes to serving God. There's no gray area. We cannot serve God and mammon. We cannot serve God and the things of this world. I want us to notice two words in verse number one. Beseech and brethren. Romans 12.1 is a command from God to Christians. It's not just a mere suggestion. That word beseech means to earnestly and fervently do something. This is something that is to be done immediately. And if you aren't doing it, it's to be done right now. In Ephesians, Paul went as far as to say that he was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he didn't say that meaning meaning it in a bad term. But we are purchased by his blood from the slave market of sin. And the very least that we could do for God is give him all that we have in service to him. That's why this verse tells us to present our bodies. That means all that we are. We are to offer our very mind, heart, and soul upon the sacrificial altar. We are called to serve God with our inward parts. We are to serve Him in love. Because He first loved us. And out of His love for us, it costed Him His life. I'm telling you, serving God is going to cost you something. Serving God will cost you greatly. Some people may pay more than others. It might cost you your time. It might cost you your comforts. It might cost you your sleep. But sacrificially serving God is going to cost you something. It might even cost us our own life. But that doesn't excuse us from service. I will never forget seeing a video of a little girl online in the Middle East. And she's at the steps of this old building. And she is bawling her eyes out. Because her daddy was just in there condemned to death for not denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord forgive us for Americanizing Christianity. Christians are out there dying daily for serving God. And they're paying the price. If service to God costs us nothing, it's worth nothing. As the dung was burnt without the camp, Paul counted all of his knowledge and wisdom and fleshly gains as a loss. He counted them as dung. And if we are going to truly serve God, we must take our flesh, our worldly gains, everything that we are, all the old vestiges of self, and burn it. Set it ablaze that it might, may no longer exist. That's why God says that we are new creatures. The old man in the old life that we once lived is to be burnt up. That we may walk in newness of life. I came across a quote from a man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill. I don't agree with him everything doctrinally. But we can learn a lot from people we don't agree with all the time. So, And he said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If any man be in Christ, he have may, may have been the most twisted, perverted, foul, cruel, carnal, stinking man in the world. But if the miracle of regeneration has entered him, he receives a new heart, a new mind, and a new spirit, and a new everything. I couldn't agree more. 
If we have received all of these new things in Christ, we must burn up the old man. Lest we be like the dog that returns to his own vomit. God saves us and gives us a new mind, a new heart, and a new spirit. But we can never serve God how we ought without cooperation on our part. There are things we must do such as put off the old man and work out our own salvation. Not that we obtain salvation by works, but when the Bible says to work out our own salvation, it's speaking about our cooperation after salvation unto sanctification. We're a peculiar people. We are to be set apart. We must take up our own cross. And by the way, it's much easier to wear a cross than to bear it as our Lord Jesus did. Nevertheless, we are to be crucified with Christ. We are to die daily. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. The world and the flesh is to be crucified to us. I'm not wanting to speak about anything in particular that I've seen. Actually, no one is on my mind. But just from what I see out in the world. And I just want to say I'll never look down on someone for their sin because I have enough in my own life. But there are professing Christians that look like the world, they act like the world, and they smell like the world. Listening to foul music, dressing just like the world, marking up your bodies with tattoos. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? Paul said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. To be carnally minded is death. There are even professing Christians that drink alcohol on Saturday night and decide to show up to church on Sunday morning and act as if nothing's wrong. When we act like the world, we bring reproach to the gospel of Christ. All these things appeal to the flesh, though. The dressing immodestly, the drinking of alcohol, all of these things appeal to the flesh, and this is why it's important that we must burn it up. We must be crucified with Christ. I'm not wanting to ruffle any feathers. I'm just saying these things in love. And I wouldn't be doing what God called me to do if I didn't speak out against it. Romans chapter number 6 verses 5 through 6 says, For we have been planted in the likeness of his death. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. Some say, Lord, help me to live for you. I want to live for God. But he doesn't want you to live for him. He wants you to die for him. Paul paid a heavy price for serving God. Of the Jews, he was lashed 195 times, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was shipwrecked. The the governor of Damascus with his men wanted to apprehend him. It may cost us to serve God, but we as Christians, if you're truly saved, will never find pleasure in this world or the desires. It costed Paul to serve God.
we grow more in the likeness of Christ and closer to And ask, why do we serve God in such a manner? Notice the word therefore in our text. We must look to the previous chapter to see what Paul is coming to the conclusion of. Look with me in Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Amen. We're to serve God because of who he is. Not only that, but if you read further back in chapter 11, you will see that God had his heart on the salvation of the Jews even after they rejected their Messiah. And when the lost see that we are serving God no matter the cost, they take notice. We as Christians can bear a load that this world normally can't. We have the mercy of God on our side. So how do we serve? Well, by the mercies of God found in Romans chapter 12 verse 1. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. It is by his mercy that he paved the way of salvation. And it is by his mercy that we will serve him. Our God is abundant in mercy. David said that he, crowneth, he crowns us with loving, mercy and loving kindness. Lastly, notice, which is your reasonable service? It's not unreasonable if God asks you to tithe your money. It's not unreasonable for God to tell you to move to another state to serve him. It's not unreasonable for God to even call you to the mission field where you might likely lose your life. Nothing that God commands is unreasonable in light of all that he has done for us through Jesus Christ. May we present our bodies a living sacrifice. May we go to the world and they, they, may, see, they may see that we die daily. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. And I want to close by saying this. I needed this message. He might as well quit the ministry. And um, I want to close by saying that if there be anyone listening in or if there even be one here that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He is Lord. He must be Lord. Without him being Lord, you can't be saved. He rules your life. But if you don't know him, if you've never trusted him, trusted him to save you from death, hell, and the grave, the wages of sin which you've earned, I'm telling you, God, God can drop you off at hell right at the very moment. We never know. We never know when we're going to die. We don't know our appointed time. Don't step over the blood of Jesus Christ. Don't step over his mercy line. We don't know where he draws that line in the sand. I thank God that we can all gather together. And I, I want to close with a word of prayer. Brother Daniel, do you want to close us in a word of prayer?